Welcome to Pints and Politics. To start off, I'd like to respectfully acknowledge that we are situated on Mississaugic lands and the traditional territory covered by the Williams Lake Treaties. Chimigwich, Nawekoa to the Mississaugic, Potawatomi, and Mohawks for caring for this territory. What is Pints and Politics? Pints and Politics is a podcast hosted at Pints and Politics, all one word, dot PTBO podcasters dot CA. You can also listen or subscribe by searching for us, Pints and Politics, on iTunes, Stitcher, and on my Substack site. This will be episode number 116. We are also an occasional panel discussion broadcast on Trent Radio, CFFF in Peterborough, Ontario, 92.7 FM. We explore all things political with a focus on life in Peterborough, Ontario, and Canada. Uh, Since March 2020, we've been gathering together online for these discussions. The discussion to which you're about to listen was recorded on Saturday, June 25th, 2022. As Canada Day, July 1st, is almost upon us, today we'll be talking about the experience of living in this country right now. Maybe not so much locally in terms of Peterborough or Ontario, but more the national perspective, although if we need to go local, we can go local. Joining me for this online discussion today is our Canada Day guest panel. We have Peterborough City Councillor and mayoral candidate Stephen Wright, and we also have law clerk, photographer, and comedian Jill Tilly. So thank you both for uh, making the time to do this. Canada is much more than an aggregate of its declared values and postcard scenery. It's also a messy, divided country steeped in unresolved conflicts. English-French, urban-rural, east-west, indigenous settler, I should also add indigenous settler and immigrant, and rich and the rest of us. And now yet another dichotomy, vaxxed and anti-vax. How do we bridge the gap between our ideal social face that we also virtuously present to the world and our less than charming but true day-to-day reality. So that's our first question. How would you respond to that? How do we bridge that gap? Well, Bill, here, I'll start us off. It's um, Stephen. And, you know, bridging the gap on these issues always has to start with a conversation and ascertaining why we are in disagreement. Because we, we tend to have more in common about the, even the things that we're opposed to. And we actually think that we do. So, you know, it's starting with that conversation and be being willing to have the conversation because sometimes there are some ugly truths to be heard, but it takes you to a place where you can actually start understanding where your differences lie. This is Jill. I think Stephen's absolutely right. The only point that I would make would be different is that sometimes I feel like we're asked to hear opposing viewpoints that are unnecessary. Like, would I have a conversation with someone at the trucker convoy? Sure. Would I have a conversation with someone waving a Nazi flag? No. And I think there's got to be a limit to what we're willing to tolerate as nuanced discussion about disagreements. There's there's a certain level of, frankly, violence in some people, not necessarily physical, but, you know, racism and hatred that 
to me doesn't really require meeting in the middle. And that, and that, there's a lot of truth to that again, uh, Stephen here, Bill, is that, you know, Jill does point out where, you know, somebody waving an axiom flag has probably reached a point in their level of ignorance where they're not going to have a rational conversation with you anyway. But you would think of both sides of any spectrum is trying to indoctrinate. And, you know, before you get the young people or, and it's no different than how gangs operate, how they try to indoctrinate people, bring them on site, you know, because they try to find that common bond. It's to make sure that when they're looking at these things is that they have a level understanding of why this versus that, why that argument versus that argument. So they go into it a little bit more. Uh, with a greater level of understanding. Bob Ray, of all people, had an interesting tweet a few days ago saying, you know, a, a blaring horn is not a, a request for dialogue. Yeah, true. Uh, you know, an occupation is not a, uh, a, a search for understanding. <laughs> you know, language gets co-opted uh, so easily hmm. in these things. Yeah. Yeah, what else, what else about uh, all these dichotomies? I mean, I know when I lived outside of Canada, about two years in the States, and when I've traveled outside of Canada in South America and in Asia and Europe, of course, I discovered, in fact, I'm quite Canadian, whatever that means. But I also discovered that the things that I held to be true, such as, you know, our our ability to to welcome di- people of different backgrounds and religions and so, really didn't hold that much water once I heard stories. Your experiences, what are they like, Patrick? Sorry, Bill. You know, you think back to, and I'm going to take a moment here in, in councils, when I introduced a motion respecting Bill 21, you know, so the conversation going into that motion being drafted, you know, you talk to... Excuse me, could, could you just define what Bill 21 is? So Bill 21 is uh, Quebec's religious symbol ban. Right, right. So anyone working in the public sector, so, you know, the banning of a hijab, a turban. Um, but, you know, there's a symbolism attached to it was the ones that were visible. So when you talked about a Sikh man carrying a kirpan, you know, it wasn't so symbolic or, you know, a Christian wearing a cross uh, mm-hmm. was under their shirt buttoned up. But it was a more visible and what it really meant in defining Canada. And I would say one of those black eyes in Canadian history when that didn't spur the level of conversation outside of Quebec that it should have spurred in defining who we are as a country and our openness to accepting different ideas, different cultures. It's important to really stand behind protecting those ideals and protecting those, or making, protecting the accommodations, quite frankly. And, right. and that didn't happen. I, you know, it was surprising when our council said that to contribute as little as $5,000, it doesn't matter how it came, whether we did it through our budget, whether we did it through councillors themselves contributing, it was just a flat rejection of the idea of contributing to the challenge at the Supreme Court level to enshrine that those protections in our constitution allows for diversity. Interesting. So what what was the outcome? Well, well, the outcome was something that I, quite frankly, I couldn't talk to anybody for three days after the vote. It it was so disturbing because then you had counselors that were willing to pat themselves on the back and say, "See, look, we took ten thousand dollars instead, and we gave it to our uh, 
a diversity and inclusion officer to pretty much do nothing with. So we moved the ten thousand budget. There was no programming. There was no education. There was no requirement yeah. for staff education. It was seemingly a much safer place to be than to say challenge the much more difficult nuance of what it means to be diverse. So not only that, but I had one counselor that came to me and said to me, quite frankly, did you talk to the only person in our entire corporation that wears a hijab about bringing this forward? And I said, well, that's where the level of ignorance begins because you don't go to your racialized community and say, well, geez, can you tell me how to solve racism? If you're not willing to do your part, then we're in the same place and we don't move any further ahead. Protecting what we are and who we are as Canadian means that sometimes we have to take on those difficult challenges, and they may not be in our own backyard. Yeah, you know, and, and Stephen, I, I have to say, uh, as a born and raised Quebec Anglophone, you know, uh, English-speaking Canadians or people of Anglo heritage in the rest of Canada tend to have this pretty strong hands-off attitude towards Quebec. They don't understand it. They don't say, let's just not rile them. Let's keep them in the country. Anything else they want to do, you know, sure, let them go ahead. It doesn't matter because we have our good life here. Mm -hmm. And that has some history because Montreal used to be the dynamic, cosmopolitan, sort of both business and cultural center of Canada when I was a child, low these decades ago. And, of course, now it's Toronto. Uh, and there's a reason for that. There are reasons for that. And so there's this English-Canadian uh, bias to saying, well, yeah, sure, let, let them do whatever, even though, as you point out, it's not fair for people. I have a question about that. The um, Even if, just for my own understanding, because I'm not an expert in Canadian constitutional law, even if the Supreme Court of Canada enshrined that that law was unconstitutional, don't we have a notwithstanding clause that Quebec uses all the time to just say, well, that may be true, but notwithstanding, we're doing it anyway? And, and that's a crux of it. Yeah, that's yes. a crux of it, Joe, because the notwithstanding clause has been used and attempted to be used by provincial governments to circumvent not only the Charter of Rights and Freedom, but where the Supreme Court itself can step in. Is in saying, well, no, sorry, that is const- it doesn't withstand the constitutional challenge, and the law is the law, so therefore that policy violates the constitution. Yeah, I don't know how you how one translates notwithstanding clause into American English. Because <laughs> we don't have such a thing. No, that's right. Because- so my question, so basically, so if Quebec has this law and they fight it in the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court says. This is not acceptable under the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Quebec can't then just say, too bad we're doing it anyway? Is that? Pretty much, yeah. So a a constitutional challenge. And this is why the uh, Canadian Civil Liberties Association is pushing to challenges in court. Because once the Supreme Court rules whether or not the proper application of the notwithstanding clause has been used, you know, it then would likely quash Quebec's Bill 21. And we've seen the fast track, you know, I talked about the slippery slope a while back at council and, and, and you immediately see it with Bill 96. So Bill 96 now says if you want to work in Quebec in the public sector, well, you've got six months as a new immigrant to learn French. I've been trying to learn French for 20 years. I, I now know how to order coffee. I'm not very good at French. If you want to be prime minister, you got to learn. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and this touches maybe on a, an unfortunately very Canada Day-ish theme of the relationship between the two cultures. I find that outside of Quebec, when people who are who I'll call settlers uh, get together, be they English, be they French, or, or from another national origin, the language is English. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, that's changing. There are more I've met people from Vancouver who went to French immersion who speak pretty passable French, and that's impressive, but they really don't have to use it. And so, I mean, it's still the case that outside of Quebec, uh, for Francophones to get service in French from the federal government, never mind the, the private sector, in your language is mm, pretty dicey in most parts of the country. So that's yet another subtext. So Canadians are fond of saying, well, we're bilingual country. Well, mm, you know, outside... Uh, Outside the the Bell Center on a Saturday night in Montreal, yeah, we're a bilingual country. In Toronto, in Saskatoon, in Vancouver, in Halifax. Uh, anyway, that's another rant. Well, Bill, it's funny that you say a, a bilingual country because realistically, we only have one bilingual province in the country. And surprisingly enough, most Canadians would like to think that it's uh, Quebec. No, it's New Brunswick. It is, that's right. It's, in fact, yeah. New Brunswick, the only yeah. bilingual province in the country. Uh, no, I, I have relatives living in Quebec still who are, of course, fluently bilingual. But the um, the seesaw between the rights of the Anglophones and the threatened Francophone majority and what happens with uh, when people from other parts of the world, immigrants, arrive, that's a dynamic that has been dancing back and forth across the political spectrum for decades. And uh, it's painful to watch because one thing that I do notice as a pattern is that immigrants will arrive, particularly immigrants, let's say uh, other parts of the world, be they Europe, be they the Middle East, Africa, South America, they will settle in Montreal. It's a great international city. But then, you know, this is where I want to live. But then after... A decade goes by, they realize the economic activity, and they come to Toronto. And so when I first came to Toronto, I'm sorry, I'm getting into ancient history here. When I first came to Toronto to visit, uh, not much out of high school, I mean, the old joke was there would there was a church on each corner of each intersection, three of the four corners, and on the fourth corner, there was a bank. Or the other way around, three banks and a church. And that was it. Like Toronto was very, extremely waspy, uh, very, very, um, how shall I say, staid, polite, civil, you know, not much going on after 11 o'clock outside on a Saturday night. You know, it was, it was very quiet. And, and then, of course, immigration changed the character of the city. And now I have to say, my, my kids are living in Toronto and when I'm in there, I mean, it's a happening place. There's all sorts of stuff going on at all hours of the night. You see the activities actually. It's surprising enough that the summertime, some of the activity that you see happening in Toronto really celebrates what uh, being Canadian is all about. Oh, yeah. You know, whether it's a taste of the Danforth, uh, the, with the Greek festival, you know, recognizing the Greek community, Caravana, 
in all oh, caravan is huge yeah. yeah massive i mean there's a 10 million dollar economic impact to toronto yeah. just for three days of activity sure. uh sure. pride you know we are we should be a well celebrated country because yeah. of the milestones that we've actually made and and how we celebrate some of these very diverse things about ourselves as a as a country yeah and yet we go back to the observation of my my friend in university a black friend who said uh you know i know so many so many blacks living up here who would say they'd rather be in the states because at least there they know yeah you know and, and so what is that saying about us mm. We we say one thing with our faces, but our behavior is another. I mean, we're, when I say us, I mean Canadian. You know, yeah, we're very polite. We're very polite, and uh, that is truly a Canadian characteristic as well. It's like I, I don't like you, and uh, I won't tell you quite bluntly as an American would in, in saying that I hate you, and uh, and this is the reason why. But uh, we'll we will we'll microaggress you in a workplace, right? You know, we'll we'll deny you the opportunities of employment. We'll stigmatize you because of the addresses, because we know predominantly one cultural community will live in a certain area over another. Yes. So yes. those addresses for employment get stigmatized. You know, so so we're very nice about how we do it. We're very salient about our approach. Americans yep. are, Joey, I don't know if you agree with me, but Americans are quite blunt in your face. I, I think I think that's true. I think when it comes to things like racism, <clears throat> we there's certainly just like here, there are people who are just very in your face about it and terrible. And I have so many friends who have said many times, like, you know, I'd rather someone came up to my face and screamed a slur at me than that person at work who pretends to be an ally to me, but just does, like you said, little microaggressions, little yep. things that I can't confront because I look aggressive or, or there's a stereotype of me. You know, I had a, I have a friend who, was told she was being too aggressive. And she's like, as a black woman, you can't say that to me, you know, because there's so much history steeped in that idea yeah. of like the yeah. aggressive black woman. And I'm just standing up for myself. And then these people are like, but I, you know, but I voted for Barack Obama. And it's like, oh, great, <laughs> cool. You know? And so sometimes, yeah, Americans can be certainly much more open about it, but sometimes that's easier to deal with, you know, because you can say, that person's terrible and I'm going to cut them out of my life and not talk to them and get away from them. It's like the people around you who are trying to be your friend or who claim to be your friend who are frankly racist and maybe they don't even realize it, but they're not willing to do the work because they think as long as they're not using racial slurs and blatantly being aggressive, they don't realize how damaging their, you know, internalized racism actually is. So co covert. I mean, the uh, when we were uh, talking a year ago, Canada Day, of course, the news of the when I, I news, I, I'm doing air quotes here. The the uh, the coverage because, of course, uh, First Nations people have known about this for for a century um, of the um, uh, unmarked uh, burial sites, unmarked graves near residential schools across the country. That really blew some of the cover that you're describing, Jill, in quite a painful way because the Canadian way is to say, well, you know, present this face of virtue so we're not like the Americans. And there it was staring at us, you know, the hundreds of graves here, the hundreds of graves there. And, of course, First Nations people said, well, look, we've been saying this for decades. You know, it's not news. <laughs> It's that finally the message got through, be it social media, whatever, how the media is used these days. And 
suddenly a lot of Canadian, non-Indigenous Canadians had to accept the fact that, yeah, that happened. And the 60s scoop, uh, residential schools, you know, it speaks to the dynamic you're, you're describing. We, we are, well, settler Canadians, I think, are only now, when I say only now, only last uh, 10 years or so, beginning to say, oh, you know, for example, my uh, on my mother's side, my father came from Ireland, my grandmother came from England. Uh, they met over there, they married over here, they raised the uh, raised a family in Montreal. For them, perspective is entirely different than it is for me today here. So, I guess when you think about how different it is, to, you know, I guess given that time frame, Bill, to, to, to today. You know, I equate it to my time in Peterborough and you, and you starting to look around the community. The community starting to look a lot different as well. You know, my daughter, when she went to Trent, I mean, for us, it was comical to count the number of black people that we'd see in Peterborough. Right. Uh, you know, you, you never got too high in your count. And the most times, right, right. <laughs> never above went five because it yeah. was the same people they saw. But, you know, now we sit around and we just look and see the more diverse faces. Oh, yeah. It's starting to look that more. It's starting to look more, in my opinion, Canadian, because that yeah. is really what our element of a Canadian is. I mean, we we're from everywhere, you know. Recognizing and the more land acknowledgments, uh, recognizing our Indigenous community. You know, I was kind of disappointed. I made a comment to someone at City Hall the other day on a National Indigenous Day uh, to see that the only thing that we did was a flag raising. So I said, "Here's a culture that is so yeah. unique." Why weren't we celebrating the entire day of that culture? You know, yeah. new immigrants that don't understand what a powwow is. Uh, right. New residents right. of Peterborough just don't understand that we're surrounded by three reserves. There's Our history is very steep. And not only did we not learn the history, uh, you know, the, 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 the sad part of Canadian history, dealing with things like Africville, but here right. is where we're actually repeating that same concept by not allowing the shared history of our indigenous communities around Peterborough to be learned yes. by new residents of Peterborough. A flag raising was insignificant in the worst way uh, to celebrate a culture that rich contribution to Canada. It's a lot like we see, you know, now in Pride Month, we see all these corporations who frankly don't give a damn about queer people or trans people any time of the year, but then they're like, June, Hey girl, slay, come get your checks at RBC. And then as soon as Pride Month's over, and it's sort of the same in that, and then, you know, I'm not, you know, calling you out, Stephen. I know you're a member of council, but I know you don't get to make these decisions. But it's like one of those things where, you know, they're like, oh, it's Indigenous Day. Like we have to do something. So let's mm -hmm. do the very least thing we can do. And then no one can say we didn't do anything, right? So. Yeah. It, it, no, well, you know what, Joe? Uh, yeah. Listen, no, you're right. I, Call it out. I mean, you have to call it out because when I raise the issue, the more people are looking at it and says, listen, let's call this stuff out. It's where the attention is focused on it. I remember something I watched a while back where uh, a company corporation was going to get on board with the Black Lives Matter movement. And uh, one of their employees said, well, that's great, but you're going to get on board with a movement. but..." What have you done pre this movement to really enhance? Uh, it was actually a hotel uh, manager that I was talking to that had that conversation, and she asked the management board, what, well, what have you done to this point? Why you want your corporate brand attached right. to kneeling 
and the Black Lives Matter movement when you've done nothing up to this point? And and she pointed to something within that corporation said, how many people from the Black and the various communities work cleaning your rooms? What have you done for them that is salient and silent that says this is a company that when they put their brand behind a massive movement, there's a brand that actually says we've been doing the work. And if you haven't been doing the work, what work are you actually going to do going forward versus Mm -hmm. just using your attachment to a popular movement to garner more money for yourself? Yeah. Yeah. You know? Now, there's one area of discourse, I think, when uh, compared to decades past, what's going on now does seem at least a bit more open. And that, and I'll credit social media for that. Of course, I was on Twitter this morning and watching the back and forth over uh, Roe versus Wade, uh, AOC saying this, Marjorie, T- Marjorie Taylor Greene saying that. These are American politicians. But I'm noticing that I mean, the, the thing I've always admired, and I have American relatives, is the, uh, the incredible uh, openness, frankness. Uh, in other words, uh, you're less in doubt about what people think of you living in the States. Shoot me down, Jill, if this is a crazy generalization. Then you are up here. I mean, there is this, uh, well, Stephen, you mentioned this, this sort of aura of politeness. And yet, I, I'm beginning to hear, certainly in the conservative leadership campaign and at, on other venues, uh, certainly on Twitter, that uh, Canadian politicians are beginning to get in your face too, with each other and with the public. I mean, Pierre Polyev goes on and on about, and I'm not so sure it's altogether bad and that at least you know, you know, he he's not hiding his... Uh, his policies under uh, a smile and uh, a glad hand, he's telling you what he's up to. Uh, it's scary, but he's telling us. I think the problem is that these, in the States, I think there are politicians who will say the most extreme thing because they know that you've got like a, you've got like a, a group of 80% of the population in the middle, right? Who are either center, left of center, or right or cent- right of center. And then you've got the fringes and they already know that people in the middle are just going to kind of vote how they vote. And they're trying to pick up those fringe constituents. But by saying these insane things, they normalize that. And that's what's scary. Making certain like, you know, comments about immigrants or comments about abortion or comments about the queer community and vilifying all those things normalizes it to the center. Americans will tell you what's going on, but it's almost extraordinarily disingenuous. Like, yeah, do I think Marjorie Taylor Greene's a literal insane person? Yes. But there are lots of other, you know, I mean, she's crazy. There are lots of other politicians who support her or took the line there who probably don't hold those personal beliefs or certainly don't hold them for themselves. You know, there's lots and lots of people who would vote to overturn abortion laws here in Canada who either have themselves or someone close to them use that service, but they know it garners votes and it's about power and it's about control. And it's about, you know, the fact that there's a certain have and have nots. If you're rich, you can certainly have an abortion, a rich person. You know, if, if Stephen Harper's kids wanted to get an abortion, they just take a plane down to somewhere in the States or they fly. You know what I mean? Like if it was illegal. Yeah. Yeah, that's an option for those people. It's it's the it's the marginalized people. 
that suffer the most by this. And those are the people that get disenfranchised anyway. So they don't care. They can say their extreme things and the people that they're hurting may not even be able to vote. You know, like I can't vote because I'm a permanent resident. So I don't get a, a say per se, but in the States I do. Um, but I'm, you know, just one person whose who's voter registration is in a blue state. So. <laughs> Good for you. You know, it's, it's um, fascinating. Just this morning, uh, someone... And I, I'm wondering, I guess what I'm driving at is now that we're in the the age of 24-7 social media, how many of these national distinctions of, I'm doing air quotes, Canadian identity, American identity, uh, British identity, European, you know, Jamaican identity, how much are those now subject to a certain homogenization or a certain leveling because of social media? And where I'm going with this is uh, some guy on Twitter this morning said, uh, ranting about Trudeau, said, we've got to elect uh, so-and-so for prime minister to overcome the damage done by this free-spending Marxist country. And I, I actually replied to him and said, actually, Canada is a constitutional monarchy. Uh, we have a Westminster-style parliament. And we have regular democratic elections. It's not a Marxist country. And in terms of – he made another generalization about cost of living. And I said, actually, our cost of living is below the UK. It's more or less the same as the US and Japan. But it's so easy on social media to make these wild – and this was not an anonymous account. I mean, this person has a name. You know, I could look him up and so on. How does that factor in social media these days? The, the way it equates social media and how it factors in, uh, uh, somebody said to me uh, the high school days when there was a party happening, you told 10 friends, then 10 friends showed up. Now, today, you get 10 friends showing up to a party, they put it on social media, and you, you get a disaster for law enforcement because <laughs> right. everybody's showing up. Yeah, right. Um, the role social media plays is in getting a message out uh, a lot quicker and really pulling out people who would typically stay anonymous. Yes. It's, it's unbelievable in how they bring it out. I mean, way, you know, because it, the comments that they can make, a journalist probably would never be able to put that onto print. And, yeah. And, you know, and even on the, the social media feeds of most of your established media, some of that stuff would never show up there. But here yeah, it is yeah, what yeah, it yeah. does. It pulls out, uh, whether they're bots doing this or not, but it pulls out a certain element uh, of people who think, great, now is the opportunity is open up for us to say any kind of craziness that we want to say now. Yes. Yeah. We have supporters. You know, we get two people who are protesting outside of City Hall all day long about the limitations of their freedom, right? And you know, at least right. wondering what freedom was taken away today for a Canadian. Why right. would they be outside protesting about it? But you know, right. Right. but when you turn to social media, I see the the significant following for that kind of thinking. Well, it lays bare and gives these two individuals some kind of platform to say, "Well, we have people who are supporting us on this issue." Today's protesting.
put interested in exploring putting this on the table. How does what we're talking about play out in terms of the pro-vaccine, anti-vax face-off? Because with the trucker convoy in the winter, Canada suddenly became a bit of a focus, certainly for the Americans and certainly other parts of the world, where this confrontation happened quite openly. You know, the, the trucks came in, they occupied Ottawa for three weeks, uh, we needed the emergency, well, needed or not, but the Emergency Act, uh, Emergencies Act was brought in to clear the demonstration. Pat King is still in jail, other people have been charged. Uh, so the dynamic, pro-vax, anti-vax, is quite open and talked about. How is that getting played here as opposed to other parts of the world? Well, I can tell you, as someone with American family, that um, after Trudeau um, enacted the emergency powers, I got a phone call from my very stable father telling me to watch out because Trudeau was going to empty my bank account if I wrote things on social media he didn't agree with. And I was like, sure, (laughs) jokes on Trudeau, I don't have any money. Um, But it's this, it sort of became this like rallying cry for people in the States, like, Oh, look what the Canadians are doing. And honestly, I really don't think it's about vaccines. Like, I think that's the umbrella they're putting it under because it's something that people can have some sort of discussion about, even if it's all insane. But it's really about, like, overthrowing democratically elected governments. It's really about the the white replacement theory nonsense. It's about, you know, like, having a supremely capitalist society and... I think people feel the pain of a pandemic and they feel the pain of a struggling economy. And instead of just being like, hey, these are things that happen and let's work together as a community to make this work. It's like, it's got to be someone's fault. It can't just be the party of personal responsibility never wants to take any personal responsibility. They're just like, let's just, you know, let's freak out and wave flags and shout racial slurs and then be like, and if you don't agree with us, you're a monster, right? So it's been very... I think you bottled it up very well, Jillia, because, you know, I, I particularly am agreeable with that point where, you know, here's a group that says, well, let's let's find somebody to blame. This is Trudeau. So now you've got the F Trudeau flags flying around, uh, you know, a rally that even happened a few weeks ago on, on City Hall property where crazies, crazies were parking in councillors' parking spots at City Hall and <laughs> holding an actual protest on City Hall property. Uh, right. And uh, we we went ahead as a council and banned symbols of hate on mm-hmm. municipal properties. But uh-huh. there it was in full display the entire morning a few weeks back. And, you know, until you contact the police services, are you kidding me? You know, wh- when when did we start allowing these kind of things to be normalized? Because when we allow them to be normalized, then you give more voice to the the, those that are sympathizing, not willing to have a, a, this, a conversation right. about what the challenges are. They're just willing to jump on board and believe any kind of nonsense without even fact-checking it themselves. I mean, these are the same groups that say things like uh, the Black Lives Matter demonstrations. Oh, they're all thugs and they're rooting, mm-hmm. looting and destroying their own city. But then they literally come and occupy a whole city with no room for discourse and they're patriots. And, and so it's like, it's not a protest. It's about the narrative of how you want this to be. You know, these are people who are like, I'm upset that I have to get a vaccination to travel into America. And someone else is like, I just don't want to get murdered by the police. 
And they're just like, they don't understand that those are two completely separate issues and that it shouldn't be, do you know what I mean? Like you can't, you can't say that one is the same and you also can't say that yours is good and pure and the other one is evil. That's a point we're putting it. Uh, you know, one is I don't want to get murdered by the police. The other one saying we just want you to stay safe, period. And you hear people argue now like, oh, well, you know, they say with the vaccine, my body, my choice, mm-hmm. you know, and it's just like, don't co-opt that statement. Abortions aren't contagious. You can't get pregnant if I stood next to you, you know, like right, right. you yeah. can kill me with COVID. Like, I'll let right. you know when you being sick is doesn't affect me versus you know, what I do with my own body. If if someone doesn't want to get a vaccine, I mean, fine, I guess. But like, then you shouldn't be entitled to be around other people who you could kill. You know, what I do with my own body that literally affects no one else should be that. So this Canada Day, what's your senses for both of you? What, what are your senses of mood, tolerance, that in that endemic Canadian politeness. I mean, is it changing? Are we becoming a bit more, dare I say, open? A bit more uh, willing to be a bit belligerent, uh, argumentative at least? Or are we still the boring, polite, smiling nation that we at least thought we were? Well, the radical right is certainly excited to be belligerent. It'd be great if some of the people on the left started getting a little more belligerent. I'm getting leftist now to the point, you know, where I'm like coming back to guns, you know, where I'm like, guns are bad. Now I'm like, oh, maybe we do need them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is going to ruin any political future. I want a a clip of this later, but that's fine. But we need, Canadians are polite to a degree where we hold that up as such a virtue. But I think sometimes the idea of, going up to someone who's actively trying to hurt you because I'm not just talking about a difference in a political opinion or fiscal responsibility. I'm talking about like the lives of indigenous people, the lives of people, the lives of queer people and being like, no more. Like there's a, like a quote from Ulrike Meinhof that is, you know, protest is when I say this doesn't suit me. Resistance is when I make sure what doesn't suit me never happens again. Right. So Bill, I'm saying, you know, this Canada day, um, are we becoming a little bit more belligerent? I believe that there's an element within the country that's actually pushing Canadians to be just that, a little bit more belligerent, both on the left and on the right, uh, being as polite as Canadians. And, you know, what's going to really uh, air market for me uh, uh, is what happens on July 1st, because this is going to be the first Canada Day parade that the city is hosting uh, since the start of the pandemic. Oh, here in Peterborough. I didn't know yeah. that. Yeah, so, we, so it is live. Yeah, so we're we're back in person with the Canada Day Parade. The multicultural day event uh, this year is is not going to happen. But you know, I'm I'm curious to see whether or not the same groups that held parades at Christmas, the anti-vaxxer yes. group, whether or not they're going to be actively participating in this Canada Day Parade to try and get their voices heard. And, and as a footnote to that, see, I know you're you're just talking about Peterborough and Peterborough's parade. What are your, both your takes on uh, what is threatened? Maybe is too strong a word, but what is forecast to happen in Ottawa on Canada Day with this new convoy arriving? I mean, is that a thing or is that spin? 
There is. You know, if there is another convoy in Ottawa and Canada Parade trying to hijack uh, the celebration itself um, and what's planned in by the National Capital Region, it, it would be a sad day um, mm-hmm. for Canada and for Canadians. You know, we can debate issues. We we can have those arguments. We can have those discussion. Our system of parliament is based on the adversarial system. So we, you know, we, we disagree just because we want to make sure legislation is crafted, uh, to the best interest of Canadians. But, you know, to hijack a parade with the ridiculousness of the arguments that be made about your freedoms being stolen by Trudeau and all that nonsense, it would be a black eye and it would feed more into the American narrative than it does of uh, what we are as Canadians. I agree so entirely. You know, I, and I I date myself with the following remark, but I can remember in decades past when Peter Zosky was alive and on CBC Radio, he had a column, or actually it was a program, it was a weekly program uh, on his, he had a daily program called Morningside, but every every Wednesday, was it? He would have Camp, Dalton Camp, Eric Kieran, Dalton Camp, of course, a conservative, Eric Kieran's a liberal, and Stephen Lewis, still alive, uh, an NDP. And they would, three old white guys would get together, but they try to understand each other. And they would discuss, and they would say things, well, like, how did you get to that? What makes you think that? Like, how can you believe? And they would, and... Am I dating myself? I guess I am. Because I miss that. Because we don't get that anymore. The stakes were different. The stakes were different then. It was three white men talking about things that at the end of the day benefited them. You know, with a few few different, you know, like a slightly different way of handling things. The fact is now there's, because there's more diversity and because there's more voices and the opinions are so much more swayed, it's hard to sit down with someone and say, help me understand why you think that uh, residential schools were fine and that like if you said as a, as a person who's mm-hmm. a leftist if you sat me down with yep. justin trudeau and i was like and i was like try to justify to me why people on reserves haven't had clean drinking water in 50 years or more right explain that to me explain why curve lake doesn't have all the services they need and to me it's, right. like, it's not a nuanced discussion it's just you're not getting it done it's happening and so it's hard to sit there and be like, oh, well, you know, how do you feel about this? When those three men, they never even gave Indigenous people a thought unless they thought they could get a vote from oh, yeah. them or to make themselves look good. And now, to some degree, they have to. And so there, the discussion gets more aggressive, you know, and maybe that's yeah. good. Now, speaking of aggression, I was at the uh, when Jagmeet Singh visited uh, Jen De- uh, the NDP candidate's office uh, in mid-May, shortly before the provincial election that happened on June 2nd. The the event was May 21st, I believe. And it was very short. I mean, yeah, there were about 15 to 20 people there who were supporters of the anti-vax side, who had things to say to Jagmeet Singh, who they, they yelled from the outside. But there was just about 20 seconds once he left where they set on him. I mean, they didn't physically attack him, but they surrounded his vehicle. They got right up close, yelled at him, you know, uncomplimentary hand gestures and so on. And the rest of us who were there, 
was sort of stunning. I said, we haven't seen this before. As I say, you know, dating myself, I remember an era in Canada where, you know, old guys would talk and try and understand each other. And this was very much in your face. And seeing, of course, it didn't help the optics. Here's this. Uh, a white crowd yelling at this uh, this Sikh man who, who's, I mean, saying, go back to where you came from. Well, he, he was born in Scarborough. You know, it's just like people say, go back to where I came from. Well, I came from Montreal, you know. Uh, but that was, I guess I'm, I'm mentioning it because it was sort of an indicator for me that, oh, things are changing. This wouldn't have happened 20 years ago. Quite as openly. The prejudice was there, for sure. And 20 years ago, would Canada have had a, a brown-skinned national leader? You know, and I'm afraid we wouldn't have. You know, so, I mean, things are changing. But that level of antipathy and vitriol I, I, quite blew me away. I mean, yeah. I think that goes to show how much it's about race versus immigration here. You know, Jagmeet Singh is a born and raised Canadian. Right. And they said that to him. No one's ever said that to me. And I'm not a Canadian. You know, like right. when people right. cluck, when like when someone finds out I'm not a Canadian, nobody right. ever has anything negative to say about that because I'm a yeah. white person and I have that proof. And so they just think, oh, well, you belong here too. And like I have a friend who's from the UK. She never gets any crap from being an immigrant. You know, yeah. there's, because she there's, there's other members of council who are immigrants who have been screamed at from cars, you know, and it's like, it's because it's because of the color of their skin, right? right. It, has, it has nothing to do with immigration. They don't care if immigrants come here. They just want a white society because they're horrendous people. And Jagmeet Singh is the face of, of taking away. The thing is, what they don't understand is that they're not necessarily losing white privilege. They're trying to give privilege to other people. But that feels like a loss to them. So they attack right. it. And so you have the face of someone, someone saying, like, listen, I don't want to take more than what you have. I just want to have some of what you have. Like, I want to be on the same level as you. And that's too scary. So they freak out, you know, scream in Jagmeet's face when he's just like, what? Like, and these are working class people. He's literally the ideal candidate for them. And they're just like, yeah. I want to vote for the billionaire who doesn't care about me at all. You know, you put it put that interesting, Jill, uh, when you talk about those groups of people thinking that, somebody who doesn't look like them is going to take away from them. Not realizing that when somebody who is from that immigrant class willing to do the hard work, it actually enhances what they already have. Because, you know, I, I think uh, I was in Regina a couple of weeks ago and uh, Jagmeet Singh was actually there as one of the presenters uh, federally. And, and he told the crowd gathered the meaning of his name friend of the world mm -hmm. and it's a great name when you think about it its actual meaning and he talked about the birth of his daughter and the meaning of her name in how he used that opportunity to really establish something that was important for us as canadians we pay our taxes we pay we pay pretty high taxes yes but we're getting something delivered for those taxes that we pay basically from somebody whose origins and his family origins is of immigrant class because now you have a dental program that rolls out to our young people straight across the country. But what an amazing thing. So nothing taken from anybody, but here's something given to you because somebody who didn't look like you was there doing the job. You know, as you were talking, Jill oh, and Stephen, it, it, what clicked, clicked into focus for me was, and this is within the last few months, 
there's been quite an uncomfortable, dare I say, disquieting set of observations from Syrian new arrivals, new new Canadians, refugees and immigrants, about how quickly Canada is like opening all the doors to all the Ukrainians who are, many of whom are are all white, uh, blonde Aryan Ukrainians who are saying, let's do whatever we can. And I, I'm not suggesting that we shouldn't help the Ukrainians. I mean, you know, they're going through this horrific experience. But the Syrians don't maybe fit in as well, uh, you know, don't uh, to the dominant Eurocentric Canadian model are feeling a bit left out. And I'm wondering what insight could come from that. You know, Bill, that's such an interesting thing, right? I remember one of my colleagues on council, uh, when the crisis broke out in uh, Ukraine, everybody was up in arms. Everybody was throwing the weight, the support behind it. And a motion was brought forward for council to give staff delegated authority to do as much as and whatever possible to assist when the Ukrainian refugee program gets established. Right. And I said to my colleague, you know, our place of city council isn't to enter the global affairs. And, you know, to, to weigh us into a global issue, I said, you know, there was nobody raising the alarm bells with what was happening in Yemen and Mali and then places like that. I said, your worst atrocities right. in the world. Ethiopia right, right now. Yeah. That's where they're happening. Oh, yeah. The, the Congo for the last 20 years. Yeah. Nobody exactly. said, hey, we should yell at Trudeau for selling arms to Saudi Arabia to shoot the Yemenis. Yeah, no, right. Nobody raised that issue. And I said, if you want to talk about global affairs at the city council meeting, I, I could raise you where areas of should be, but then we might have to all resign our positions or run federally so that we can make differences there. But but it is to be noted that because, yeah, you're right. And it's been said by other refugees from places from Iran and other places in the world where they said, you know, listen, we, we see the, the hasted approach, the celebration of getting uh, people from Ukraine into positions, how quickly the immigration rule was open to allow for those refugees in while there were other people from worn, torn areas elsewhere in the world that are still waiting for a refugee application to be processed. I mean, there's Afghanis who who helped Canadians, uh, Canadian Armed Forces, over who are still stuck in Afghanistan. Yeah. Yes, chew on that one. Well, <laughs> we're winding down here, but are there other thoughts about Canada Day 2022 you have that you want to put on the table? Well, you know, I'm hoping, and my, my hope is, that the parade is about celebrating the things that really can unite people. Focus. I know there's a lot of themes around back together again. <laughs> Let's see if we can hold to that. Back yeah. together again with a lot of common sense. I'm not looking or anticipating or seeing any diverse, uh, divisive actions during the parade, but hoping that we know we can have a greater participation of our Indigenous community in these things as well. We, have, we can celebrate and talk about the past and position how we build for the future by just blatantly recognizing the atrocities of the past. Yeah, see, what makes our history. When does the parade start? What's the route and where does it finish? We're starting at 10 a.m. Right uh, right in front of City Hall and uh, going all the way down to uh, Memorial Park by the MEM Center. 
The Mem Center, okay. And there's not going to be uh, that wonderful uh, picnic in Del Carre? Yeah, yeah, from what I understand, uh, yeah, the, the, the multicultural event's not going to happen this year. And, um, oh, absolutely. Because that was a high point, as I recall. Oh, the, definitely the new was. Canadian Center put on a few classes you could go to. I did a Indian spices class and a Peruvian paper making class and Ooh. an Ethiopian cooking class on Zoom. You did that? Yeah. Yep. And oh. so there's a, so I know they have that and they're doing, there's, I know today around town, there's some uh, restaurants that you can go to that they're giving free samples like um, Milk and Tea and Hanoi House and Dirty Burger. And I know that there's going to be a, um, <laughs> there's a, there's going to be a, um, they have this little like, you know, the Christmas shopping passports they have. Um, yep. They've got one of those. And for every $10 you spend, you get a stamp if you buy stuff at these restaurants. And then you're entered to win in uh, like $250 borrow gift card. I don't know what that means, but it sounds great. So that starts today. Uh, so it, they have them at the restaurants and you can, it, you can fill it up until July 1st. But today's the sample day. Okay. Well, that's good to know about. Yeah. I didn't know that. Well, gosh, Bill, if you weren't so busy on Twitter explaining constitutional monarchies, <laughs> that's something we got to get rid of here. Get rid of that queen. Yeah, that's something we can want to get rid America. of the queen. All right. Oh, we need another program for that, Jill. I mean, dump that oh, tea. Dump that dump tea. That, oh no. Well, who knows how long Liz is going to be there for? Anything else? All right, so we'll sign off. So, uh, Stephen and Jill, thank you so much for joining me uh, for this panel discussion. You've been listening to Pints and Politics. We are an occasional panel discussion podcast episode about all things political. We're also an occasional radio program coming to you, and will come to you through the facilities of Trent Radio 92.7 on your FM dial, CFFF in Peterborough. Our podcast is hosted, pintsandpolitics.ptbopodcasters.ca, and uh, this show, episode number 116, will be uploaded there. We're also uh, post on Twitter and on our Facebook page, Pints and Politics Podcast. We're on iTunes and Stitcher and on my Substack site, uh, templeman.substack.com. So until next time, this is Bill Templeman. 